So Hebrews chapter 3 and from verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was also faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honour than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were spoken to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion or on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their hearts as they have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who, who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses and with whom he was provoked forty years? Was it not with those who sinned whose bodies fell in the wilderness and to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest but to those who were disobedient? See, so we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should, be, should seem to have fall, failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in the pa this passage he said, They shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news fail to enter it because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David, so long afterwards, in the words already quoted, Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then... There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is a living and active, sharper than two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Hebrews has a way of showing us that the Old Testament was full of little pictures, little pictures, things that, that at the time people might have thought, you know, were everything, but, but were actually just little pictures of, of something much, much bigger still to come. 
And in chapters 3 and 4 that we've just read, the example of that at hand is no less than the whole history around Israel entering the promised land. That was actually just a little picture, Hebrews is saying here, a picture to set us up for something far, far bigger. Israel and the promised land was was kind of like a little micro story that, that captured the concept in diagram mode or something of the actual story of Scripture which is pretty epic if you give it some thought, uh, because it's hard to actually find a stretch of Old Testament that, that isn't somehow connected to Israel and the Promised Land. The first six books of Scripture are required to rescue and, and form this nation together and bring them into the Promised Land, and, and then much of the narrative that follows in the Old Testament is about Israel in that promised land, struggling as they do and and failing to follow God as they should until they're exiled from the promised land and and after which they then partially return and and begin rebuilding there in the promised land. Think about it. The Old Testament actually kind of revolves around Israel and the promised land. But Hebrews chapter 3 here is saying that the Bible story wasn't actually about Israel and the promised land. That was just a picture of a much bigger story. On the one hand, the story was actually about entering God's rest, and the promised land was just a picture of that rest. And on the other hand, Israel too, it's not like they were some national endpoint of all of God's plans. They just represented the bigger story of God bringing together a people for his name. The Israel side of this starts opening up into a bigger picture from verse 3 in our reading where, where Jesus is compared in this first paragraph with Moses. Moses, the prophet, of course, through whom God rescued Israel and forged them into that nation and, and led them towards the promised land. Chapter 3 and verse 3. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honour than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Jesus is infinitely more to the Bible story than Moses was because Moses was simply serving God in his particular context and and serving God so that the things about Jesus, that the real things that needed to be told, could later be revealed. Jesus is the one who is over God's house. And we are that house, verse 6. And we who, we should probably just stop and check, well, Well, it hasn't been about the house of Israel, this word of God. It's been about the house of God. And we who have put our hope in God's promises are that house. And if the end point of of God's house wasn't national Israel, then, then it shouldn't really be as any surprise to us that the promised land, you know, geographic Israel, wasn't the full point of it either. That part of it too starts to open out into the bigger picture of everything in in verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, uh, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. 
on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for forty years. Therefore I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart, that they have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. The promised land was actually about entering God's rest. And the scripture goes on through verse 16 to 18, through disobedience that the first generation that did come out of slavery in Egypt led by Moses, well, they didn't enter that rest. They, they were kept out of the promised land and they died in the wilderness. But here's the thing that Hebrews goes on to say, even if they did reach the promised land, that wouldn't have been the full sense of God's rest. Because if you know the story, Joshua, after Moses, Joshua did lead the next generation into the promised land. But but if you fast forward another 500 or so years, God was still speaking through King David about entering entering his rest in in some greater way than this promised land thing. In chapter 4 and verse 8, for if Joshua had given them rest... God would not have spoken of another day later on. So when he led that second generation into the promised land, well, that wasn't their rest. If Joshua had given them rest then, then God wouldn't have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. So we've got to clock that. The promised land, as central as it was to the Old Testament narrative, the promised land was not the end point. It was just capturing a much greater truth of Scripture in picture form, a greater truth of entering God's rest. And what was that fuller sense of rest? What is that fuller sense of rest in Scripture? Well, the start of our reading actually puts us squarely in it, in chapter 3 and verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters, you who share in a heavenly calling, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Just as Israel represented God bringing together a people for himself, The promised land represented our heavenly destiny, the the, the rest of God for us that we will enjoy for all eternity. The whole Israel and the promised land part of that timeline, well, well, that was a picture of that. More than a picture, actually, it says here, it it was a teaching example That was all a teaching example for our benefit in understanding our heavenly calling. The scripture here goes on to explain in verse 12, chapter 3 and verse 12, Take care, brothers and sisters, lest lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Because it's actually all about us, verse 6. We are his house if, if we hold fast to our confidence and to our hope. We are those who share in Christ, verse 14. So, 
So pay attention to what went down with Israel and the promised land, this scripture is saying, because their example was for us. Chapter 4 and verse 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as it came to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. The thrust of scripture was actually always about those who believe. The people of God are those who trust God. And the rest that God has promised is is the rest that we who believe, trust God, will enter. And, And so the big story is what we do as the people of God who have come to share now in Jesus Christ. Chapter 4 and verse 11, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. The examples of Israel and the promised land was to the benefit of us who believe. We are now those of the promise, the people of God with a heavenly calling. All of which brings some great clarity to to some unbalanced kind of teachings that that are still around today because if if the whole bible promise of of god's rest for us was was always about more than israel entering the promised land then it's unusual that churches and christians today would would kind of want to go backwards from what we now know through the full revelation of scripture and and kind of focus all of their prayers and their their energies on on trying to re-establish national israel in the literal promised land According to Hebrews, the call of Scripture on God's people is actually a heavenly call. It's a heavenly call for all those who hope in and share in what he has now done in Jesus. Our Israeli friends need so much more than to re-establish their heartland. Our prayers and our efforts for them need to be pointing them to and and leading them to Jesus and and to the true and and heavenly rest of God. And a second teaching that, that kind of comes up short against what Hebrews is saying here is the prosperity gospel that that the world is so swept up in at the moment. This teaching today that that actually wants to uh, make our hope and faith about some personalised little promised land, that's what it's doing, some personalised little, our own private little this earthly kind of blessing. But we have a heavenly calling, Hebrews is saying. We have a heavenly calling. Next time you catch up with a brother or sister for a coffee or something, try to get the conversation to that. Try to get the conversation to that, to just be sure that they've got that in mind. Because today's prosperity preaching is missing the whole point of God's promises to us for this blessing of rest. And it's done that by trading in tiny little pictures for people, microscopic little pictures of individualised blessing that, that fall well short even of the teaching examples in Scripture. So, so let's be clear 
through Hebrews and let's review Jesus and, and what he actually did promise to us and die for so that we could receive. Chapter 2, if you recall last week, only just told us that Jesus came into the world to uh, provide an atonement for our sin. A propitiation was the word, if you remember it from chapter 2 and verse 17. A propitiation. Christ died so that the wrath of God against our sin could be appeased. Pray that the church at large in this world would proclaim that. That act of propitiation restores us to the living almighty God. If we will but repent of our sin and receive of what Jesus so graciously did. The Bible actually therefore calls the church to proclaim what? Repentance for the forgiveness of sin in Jesus' name. Because when we're forgiven in this way, we are reconciled to God so that we can now live with our God in glory said chapter 2 and verse 10. There is glory ahead of us. Or as chapter 3 and 4 now say, we shall have rest, the true rest, the eternal rest in the full glory of heaven. We shall know our God and enjoy him forever. Our Christian hope is about no less than that. As Hebrews sets out, So clearly here, Jesus has given us a heavenly calling. Chapter 3 and verse 1, a heavenly calling. We are the house of God that God is building. Verse 6, we have even come to share, it says, in Christ. Verse 14. And so Hebrews does a really good job of setting us straight on our faith and, and, and gives us clear warning, therefore, so that we don't miss that promise that the whole Christian hope is framed upon. You see, we can't afford to get distracted, can we? We can't get, afford to get distracted so that we lose sight of the actual prize in all this. We obsess about some little blessing for today as if that's all that kind of matters and we might be in danger of losing sight of the whole thing. We might be. Hebrews keys us in properly to the big picture for our eternal good. Chapter 3, verse 12, take care, take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, exhort one another so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Because sin is deceitful in the way that it causes us to fall away from the living God. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. So let's tune into the big picture and and the big call around that big picture. And if we can try to move from the teaching example of Israel and the Promised Land and move into our actual and, and cosmic reality we find ourselves in, what, what, well, what does it look like, I suppose, for us to, to harden our hearts? Well, for them it was disobedience and or unbelief. Maybe you can check that for me if you have your Bible open there, chapter 3 and verse 19. Uh, why were the Israelites unable to enter the promised land in, in that teaching example? Well, 
uh, well, it says where we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. And then when the argument comes back to Israel again in chapter 4 and verse 6, why, why were they unable to enter the promised land? Well, they failed to enter because of disobedience. That's interesting. What was the problem, unbelief or disobedience? And what about the danger for us then as we try to move on from the teaching example, as we look at our heavenly reality of this rest idea? Well, check, if you would, chapter 3 and verse 12 that we've just looked at a couple of times. What will lead us away from the rest that Jesus has promised us? Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. But when it comes back to us again in chapter 4 and verse 11, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Is the warning here for us about unbelief or is it about disobedience? Is God writing this scripture to us, uh, you know, evangelistically or pastorally? Is that even a fair dichotomy? Well, I think in our letter Hebrews here, the, the two things actually go together. They're two sides of one thing. Unbelief manifests in disobedience. Disobedience obstructs true belief. And it's not just in this letter to the Hebrews, by the way. Uh, much more famous scriptures like John chapter 3 say exactly the same thing. John chapter 3, verse 36 Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. There's actually no way around this relationship in Scripture between belief and obedience, or, or unbelief and disobedience. If we believe in Christ and call ourselves Christians, then then there will be a desire in us to obey Christ. If by that propitiation word we looked at last week, you know, that Jesus laid down his life for the punishment due for our sin, if, if by that propitiation word we have come to know Jesus as our saviour from sin, then that will be because we want to be released from our sin. And our response to his great salvation will, will quite naturally then well, well up in us as a desire to seek his ways now. Going astray in our heart all the time, chapter 3 and verse 10 in the warning, and, and not knowing his way, that's what we've been saved out of, not into. That just wouldn't make sense, would it? They go together and here's the thing, that desire, that, that obedience uh, that follows is, is God's work in us as his people now. The call on us here is to let God do this in us. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as the psalm says. This isn't just some kind of teaching for uh, our moment of conversion and then we sort of move on or something. No, no, this word is for our transformation now as we let God continue to show us our sin so that, so that we can fight against our sin and, and pursue holiness as, as he calls us to. God doesn't just save us from sin. He then sets about transforming us 
into obedience. The Son, if you look back at chapter 2 and verse 11, the Son is sanctifying us now. That's what that word means. He's transforming us into obedience. We capture that connection, by the way, between belief and obedience in our statement of faith here at New City Church. In point seven, it is about the work of the Holy Spirit. We say this, we believe that the Holy Spirit applies this salvation to each believer, personally granting them a living faith in the work of Jesus. Thus, those who trust in Jesus Christ are marked by the Holy Spirit as holy, belonging to God. We believe that the fruit of that salvation is a life then transformed by the Holy Spirit who personally dwells in the heart of every believer, uniting them with God and transforming them to become more and more like Christ in their thoughts, words and deeds. Belief and obedience go together. Trusting in Jesus uh, to propitiate our sin, to grant us the forgiveness that we so need, it, it only can sit alongside the desire to be without sin and therefore to pursue obedience to God. And by the grace of God, he will do that for us. This is part of his promise to us. That's why he now has us striving towards our heavenly calling, as he says in chapter 4 and verse 11. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. I reckon part of the problem in all this that Hebrews is trying to correct us against is it might be that, that we kind of create the wrong picture in our minds looking forwards from where we now are. A wrong picture of, of heaven in, in this heavenly calling that's upon us. We tend to think that in heaven, you know, we'll, we'll at last be able to just do whatever we like without all the obstacles and barriers in our way, which is actually, if you think about it, satisfying our own desires in our own private little heaven. That, that's kind of the cultural picture of heaven and we fall into it all the time. But surely the rest that God has set aside for us in heaven will actually more be like we'll, we'll finally be able to live the way God created us to be and the, and the way that God desires of us to live. Wouldn't it be that we actually would have come into, into a clean and pure obedience to his ways? Heaven is the kingdom of the Son. We reflected on that in chapters 1 and 2. Heaven is the kingdom of the Son. And in chapter 1 verse 9 we were told very explicitly the Son loves righteousness and he hates wickedness. We must recalibrate our picture of heaven if we've fallen into that, that cultural kind of misunderstanding. Hebrews are trying to correct us against a false way of thinking in the meantime, still so popular today, that only thanks Jesus as saviour, but doesn't really want to turn from sin. But if in the meantime, between here and heaven, our heart doesn't desire obedience to Jesus, then, then we probably should check that we truly have repented of our sin, trusted in Jesus to propitiate God's wrath against our sin. Or as that scripture I read from John chapter 3 says, 
the wrath of God will still remain on us because we will still be both unbelieving and disobedient. The two things have to go together. We can't get the wrong end of this, though. We can't get it around the wrong way because the first truth of of propitiation, well, what does that declare? It, It declares very clearly that none of us can be right with God through, you know, our obedience. We can't somehow attain to a holiness that would warrant our heavenly calling. No, that truth screams at us that we need saving. We need propitiating because we are sinful, is what that truth says. That's why Jesus had to die. Because we can't otherwise survive the wrath of God that should fall against us for our sin. But when Jesus takes our punishment for us, we are saved from God's wrath, which which therefore means that, that well, we just have a new standing now in God's eyes. That the way that God sees us now is, is totally different because his wrath does not need to fall on us. We are his people now. We are his house, this scripture says, and, and by his Holy Spirit he sets about transforming us slowly renovating us and bringing us more and more into his ways. And so he calls us here so naturally and so beautifully to strive, therefore, towards the heavenly calling that he has already assigned over us. Chapter 4 and verse 11. If belief flows into obedience, uh, and if God saves us and then transforms us, then then it's God's desire for us that are captured in his scriptures that that really must be the calibration point on on our hearts in all this as we seek to figure out how to live this out and map this out. As we strive towards our heavenly calling, we let the Holy Spirit identify sin in our lives and we pray to God and we strive with God to to fight against sin. And It's got to be the scriptures that becomes our vital point of reference in all that. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. His word is sharper than a two-edged sword. It can and it will get in there and cut sin out of the deepest and darkest recesses of our hearts. And why? To bring us into obedience. And why? Because we have been given a heavenly calling. But if we harden our hearts to God's word, then God's word starts speaking to us being cut out. Don't make the mistake of thinking that God only has thought to speak to you of your conversion. He speaks to you of your ongoing transformation. So even if you came to Christ 50 years ago today or longer, if you think of it, Today, it says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. 
Let his word get into you and continue to have its way with you. And don't build your faith around some lesser picture than this. In Jesus, we have our heavenly calling. God intends, therefore, to do surgery on us with his word to prepare us for that. It will be glory. We can't get distracted with earthly blessings, nor can we think forward to some shallow kind of view of some selfish little heaven is what it is in our pictures. There there is utter glory ahead of us, chapter 2 and verse 10, in the presence of the living God. So maybe I can ask you then, on the back of such a hard scripture, how is your heart doing in, in light of this heavenly call? Is it believing? Is it obedient? If you can see signs in your life of obedience to God's word, with, with yes, God's word as your calibration point on all of that, then, then that ought to give you great comfort, great assurance, actually, that your heart truly is believing. Obedience is God's sanctifying work in his people, uh, left to our uh, look, I'm going to speak for all of us. I think I can. Left to our own devices, you and I would resist God's word. We would, my friends. So if God has actually been humbling you under His word, doing sometimes some of this tough cutting, then Hallelujah, Hallelujah! That is just what He promised to do for His people. Be of good courage in that, then, and trust Him to keep working in you all the way to heaven, because that is the call he has put upon you. If you look into your heart today and see that there are areas where you've been disobedient, then praise God that he has brought that to your attention today. Praise God and now now listen to his gentle correction today. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Turn to him and, and submit to his correction because he has put a heavenly call upon you. But this is a hard word and we must all be we must all be honest in our appraisal of these things. And not just today, but in our in our day-to-day generally, we, we must let God's word have its way with us and draw out our sin for us to see so that we can repent of it and, and be forgiven of it. We must be wary of our default tendency is actually, you know, to justify sin, to rationalise sin in defiance to God's word in Scripture. Our cultural context suggests that such and such is okay. No. No, God's word is the standard of heaven. And it will be sharper in us than a two-edged sword if we have a heavenly call upon us. On which heavy note, I think I best pray. Heavenly Father, thank you as always for your scripture. Hard as it can be for us, we thank you for it. And we thank you for the Uh, the salvation that you've shown us in Scripture that promises us rest. We look forward to our place in heaven with you. Oh, what a thought.
We thank you for that, that you have set aside for us by way of this great salvation that you've held out to us in Jesus, your Son. Father, keep us focused on that. Keep us focused on the true kind of rest that you have in store for us. And don't let us get distracted with other less significant things that that our hearts might suddenly desire. No, keep us safe in your gospel truth, Lord. Grant us that we would be courageous and honest now as we strive towards the full extent of what you have saved us into, that we would pursue your good word and seek to live, therefore, lives that are holy unto you. Sharpen us, then, for our heavenly call. In Jesus' name we do pray. Amen.